everyone. I'm Melody Maraca. And I'm Bill C. Welcome back to the Into the Heart of YouTube podcast, where two longtime fans discuss YouTube music album by album and tour by tour, the fan experience and the perception of YouTube and cultural consciousness. Yeah, I mean, Melody and I, we came of age with YouTube. We saw it all happen in real time. And as we sit here in 2023, we still care about this band, but we're concerned about their legacy. So, as we take a trip back through the band's history, we're going to try and place it in proper context and ultimately get to the bottom of whether U2 is one of the greats of all time, or are the haters right after all? Okay, Bill. So, why don't we go ahead and pick things up um, with the start of side two of the Joshua Tree, Red Hill Mining Town. Let's go ahead and take a listen. All right. From fall to sun. So I have to say, um, this is my least favorite song on the album. Um, Me too. Yeah, and I don't think it helps. Uh, that the song follows what really can be called five of the band's strongest songs. Um, I mean, you know, you mentioned Bill in part one of the episode, which of course, hopefully everyone listens to or has listened to. Of course um, they have. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you've mentioned how strong um, side one of this album is. Yeah, I mean, you know, back in the old days when there was sides to records, uh, you know, Run to Standstill is like a incredible ending to that uh, first five song run. And uh, now 30 years later, it's still called one of the great sides in all of rock history. Right. And then you have um, side two, starting with this, um, with this song. And I don't think it's a bad song, but I do agree with Larry when he said of it um, that it was overproduced and underwritten. It was one of those great ideas that never quite got there. Yeah, I mean, I got to agree. I, I am not a fan of this tune. It does have some great moments that love slowly stripped away. Mm. That's a great soaring part. But overall, this is the only track to me that feels overwrought, forced, overproduced. Yeah, musically, it, it's always felt a little confused to me. Um, it, it feels like it's trying to be maybe both a folk song and a power ballad. Yes. Um, and... Oh gosh, those the, the backing vocals, which I usually really like U2's backing vocals, but these that those oohs, the ooh, mm -hmm. they're just they're they're kind of sappy, you know. Well, it's it's one of those adornments that you know I'm not fond of. You know, if it doesn't really serve to heighten, you know, the the pop popness of the song. I have no problem with pop, don't get me wrong. But yeah. when it doesn't serve it, when it feels cute. Or, you know, just like something, it, it doesn't, it cute. doesn't serve her. Yeah. Sappy is a better word, or cute's a better word than sappy. Yes, it feels cute. Yeah. And, it and it, it, it in a fit. way, it literally feels like some of the crap that they, they've been doing on the last few records. Mm -hmm. Let's just add yeah. another part. That'll make it a hit. <laughs> Again, you know how I love to get ahead of myself. And then you have to hit me with a rolled up newspaper. <laughs> um, okay. So anyway, um. Listen, it was kind of amazing that this was going to be the first single from the album, the introduction, you know, what they were going to come out of the gate with. And they did a very elaborate video directed by a pretty good Irish filmmaker, Neil Jordan. But it's terrible. The video is just wretched. <laughs> and thank God they scrapped it because the song and the video really are wrong, as I say, an entry point to the Joshua Tree record. I agree with you. And I have to comment on that video. You know, it's Oh my gosh, it's it's Bono is the sexy coal miner. He's so Just, sweaty. It's so bad. <laughs> it really is bad. <laughs> I mean, I give them credit for recognizing it was shite. <laughs> yes, I agree. Um, so but let, let, let's look at the lyrics for a yeah. second. Um, they were inspired by the year-long miner strikes in the UK um, that had caused extreme poverty in the coal region of that country and violent clashes with Margaret Thatcher's conservative government. Um, who had ruled the, the strike unlawful. Um, and you can hear images alluding to all of this um, in the lines, uh, the coal face cracked, the lines are long, and then through hands of steel and heart of stone, our Labor Day has come and gone. So why don't we go ahead and just take a listen to that. Yeah. The scene is 
that ultimately um the song reads like a love song set against some type of struggle um which adds to its universal appeal but that's really how it reads to me right and bono would be as you know criticized for not being politically specific enough um but he said he was more interested in how relationships were affected and that others were more qualified to comment on the strike itself which is kind of a funny quote when you think about all the haters that love to pile on him now right <laughs> somebody complaining about him not being Polit politically specific enough <laughs> <laughs> the guy can't win some of the time exactly um, so but I think it's kind of an interesting um, footnote to this song um, that you uh, two performed a cover of Peggy Seeger's song Spring Hill Mining Disaster which is a fantastic cover by the way Yes. Um, on an episode of the Irish television show the Late Late Show um, and an episode honoring the band the Dubliners um and that um, hearing the song, um, listening to the song was an inspiration for Red Hill Mining Town. Um, and and just so you know, that show was broadcast on March 16th, 1987, a few days after the Joshua Tree was released. Yeah, I mean, we don't really know, but maybe it was one of those songs that, you know, maybe Charlie Whisker played for him during right, the making right. of, you know, right. who, you know, maybe that was the connection or something like that when he was doing his little, uh, you know, let's explore the blues or, you know, old folk music. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I did want to say, yes, incredible uh, cover, and you two up to this point were not always very good at covers, which is why they became a great writing band. <laughs> they couldn't cover other people's songs. Um, personally, I, I know they did it a few times early on the first leg of the Joshua Tree tour. I wish this had been the cover, uh, as People Get Ready was the one they they focused on, at least on the first leg. And although People Get Ready lyrically is on point, a great song by Curtis Mayfield, uh, it was not good. <laughs> Didn't enjoy that personally. This is a little uh, dull. I think it was dull. Uh, I would have loved uh, Spring Hill Mining Disaster. I think they would have been more on point. And it is a super cool cover. And if anyone wants to go find that clip on YouTube, it's uh, one of their best. Agreed. Um, and yeah, and I want to say one other thing. Um, you know, they had one of the interesting stories. You know, uh, late in the Joshua Tree writing sessions about October '86. Um, they had another kind of wellspring of inspiration, writing a bunch of tunes late in the process. And I believe it was Eno that said, great, guys, but if we don't stop here, it's never going to end. <laughs> and um, some of those songs late in the process, I believe, were stuff like Walk to the Water, um, Luminous Times, um, I believe Sweetest Thing, mm -hmm. um, Deep in the Heart, maybe, I'm, I'm not sure, but they, they finished these up later after they had mixed the record as B-sides that would, we start talking about some of these B-sides that they very genuinely, about three songs on the first three singles, With or Without You, Still Haven't Found, and Streets, um, they filled out those. But uh, I, I guess what I wanted to say is, while both of us have criticized Red Hill Mining Town, when you really get down to it, there really isn't for me, even though I like personally those other songs more, as far as the balance of the record. And again, we're talking about a time when um, sequencing albums, the, the ebb and flow or the rise and fall of side one is, uh, to side two was a thing. A lot of people who stream records, they don't understand this now. But this was a major concern. And you two, historically, were always a big fan of how records, albums were these total works. And so I, I guess what I want to say, although there was a lot of good stuff um, to choose from, and they did consider a double album, I, I think I, I understand why they chose Red Hill Mining Town in terms of balance. Yeah, no, I, I yeah, I get what you're saying. Although, I, I don't know, I, I, I guess I always wish that, I'm one of those people that wishes that they had put in Sweetest Thing. Yeah, but in this 
I mean, like Springsteen is another one who has so many songs and you go, oh, my God, how did he leave this off? You know, like, right. but, you know, it's the artist has a vision and we have, you know, we, we you know, we, we, we sit here and we go, you know, yeah, we all have a personal favorites. But in, in this case, I think I kind of do understand, even though I'm not a fan of this song, um, it's it's really only the one song I kind of go, eh doesn't feel right but right. i can understand i can understand artistically the the reasoning for it yeah good point good yeah. point all right melly where are we going from here well let's go ahead and take a listen to in god's country all right Okay, we were just talking about sequencing for this record and the decisions that went into what ended up on the record. And I think In God's Country and Trip Through Your Wires are necessary pieces to balance out some of the heavier material. Kind of more straightforward, rocking, brief. Um, I like In God's Country. Sounds very open, lyrically on point. I mean, this and Streets, of course, both reference the desert and paint a uh, cinematic sense of location. Uh uh, a juxtaposition of the immense, timeless landscape of the desert, and with a nation of progress and oppressors in a place where dreams and violence coexist, um, has a bittersweet quality depicting America as the you know the desert rose and a siren whose dress torn in ribbons and bows, kind of both sad and seductive. Um, the lyrics strike at the heart of the band's love-hate relationship to America, this idea of the American dream in theory and in practice. So a line like sad eyes, crooked crosses would uh, be on point with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the lyrics here are, are quite strong. They're they're very mature. Yeah. Um, you know, like in Where the Streets Have No Name, we're in another mythical desert. Um, but while that desert is describing maybe a, a mythical Africa, this desert, as you're saying, it's it's certainly a cinematic analogy of the two Americas. Right. Um, that mythic land, wide open spaces of democracy and freedom side by side with a country of greed, racism, and social and political apathy as well. Yep. Um, you know, and I think that the dichotomy is captured throughout the song, but I especially like the lines, she is liberty, she comes to rescue me, hope, faith, her vanity, the greatest gift is gold. So why don't we listen to that? Yeah. She is liberty, she comes to rescue me, hope, faith, her vanity, the greatest gift is gold. Yeah, the, then there's this complicated symbolism of the Statue of Liberty. This is uh, an unwrapping of the Irish immigrant's dream uh, versus the reality of living here. Yeah, you know, Bill, I like the song um, too. Um, but I do think this is one time where the tension between Bono's love towards Americana and Edge's European sensibility eh, maybe don't work as well as intended. Yeah. I've always wished that the song had been arranged and played with a bit more of a country flair. Um, you know, I know that the song and trip through your wires are meant to be, you know, the up-tempo rock songs. Um, but the melody to me has always read kind of country. And, you know, frankly, I would, I would love to see someone like Emmy Lou Harris cover the song and, you know, give it a proper twang. Um, so let's go ahead and take a look at a trip through your wires. Yeah, I really love this song. Um, granted, it's not their best, but it's fun and sexy. And for you too, anyway, a down and dirty little blues number that considerably lightens the mood on such a heavy album. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
you know, we were talking before um, about their appearance on TV Gaga. Um, that was in late January, 86, uh, when they did Trip Through Your Wires. Um, and, and they also did, as we said, the quickly discarded romp of Womanfish. Um, and we talked about, you know, how they looked and kind of disheveled and rootsy. Uh, would this be a harbinger of the new record? And now that we get to the Joshua Tree, the answer is kind of, but no, right. not entirely. <laughs> right. You know, and also, Bill, as you mentioned in, in uh, part one of uh, the Joshua Tree episode, um, the music is mostly finished at uh, when they're on TV Gaga, but the lyrics have quite a long way to go at that point. Right, right. Um, lyrically, you know, this song does kind of stay on message, you know, with the conflicted relationship with America through the analogy of uh, the seductive femme fatale possessed of a good and evil duality. You know, Bono touched on that a little bit in one of the verses on Still Haven't Found, The Angel and the Devil. Um, what else you got there, Melody? Well, I mean... Yeah, I, I agree with that interpretation, certainly. And I, I I think it's there. But for me, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe to me, the song is a little simpler. I hear a lot of the sexual tension in it. Um, and I've always viewed it as being about some sort of maybe passionate encounter um, that's uh, a little unsustainable, maybe a little bit toxic, but very, very steamy. Um And also uh, for its, its, its relationship to being a song about love relationships the band has said that it was meant to be heard in the context with the sweetest thing um when they were considering this that song for the album um you know which is also another song about a complex romantic relationship so so there's that right um you know for me i wouldn't call the song special but um i i, I do like it i like it that it's here um the harmonica is joyful and the three four time signature does distinguish it I have a little quibble with the production, the mix, uh, the choice of reverbs. Um, it's a little dated, um, but again, I'm glad it's here. It serves yeah. its purpose, uh, kind of like this bridge from, um, for me, what ends side one. I'm going to kind of jump over Red Hill Mining Town, but it bridges that emotionally to our next track. And what would that be? And that is One Tree Hill. Yeah, let's give it a listen. call this the most personal and emotional moment on the Joshua Tree, uh, a eulogy for Greg Carroll, Bono's personal roadie. If you watch the Live Aid performance, you'll see Greg shadowing Bono's every move. Carroll died in a motorcycle accident July 86, and to whom the entirety of the album is dedicated. Yeah, and just for a, a little bit of a context backstory, um, you two met Greg Carroll during the Unforgettable Fire tour stop in New Zealand um, in August or September of 1984, where he worked as a local crew member during the shows in Auckland. Um, Bono has said that um, he was unable to sleep after one of those shows. So a group of people, including Greg Carroll, took him up to a place called One Tree Hill, um, which is a volcanic hill near the city of Auckland and um uh, which is spiritually and culturally significant to the maori people um, and bono's memory of this visit is reflected in the lyrics of the song and yet it's not entirely about gray carol i didn't know this until much later but the always enigmatic lyric jara sang his song a weapon in the hands of love you know his blood still cries from the ground uh, that this refers to the Chilean political activist and folk singer Victor Yara, Yara um, who became a symbol of the resistance against uh, the Augusto Pinochet military dictatorship after he was tortured and killed during the 1973 Chilean coup d'etat. 
Uh, Bono learned of Dara after Renee Castro, a Chilean mural artist, while on the uh, Amnesty International tour. I didn't know um, about that either. I didn't know who uh, Victor Jara was. I'm glad I do now, though. Yeah. Um, so the lyrics, though, I think um, I think really you could call them maybe a meditation on grief. Um, you know, not as you're saying, not just um, about the death of Bono's friend, um, but grief also for a world that would kill a singer for singing his song. Mm, um, yeah. But um, I mean, the song, it doesn't just wallow in grief. There is certainly a feeling of spiritual redemption here, too. Um, you know, my favorite stanzas are about this. I think um, I don't believe in painted roses or bleeding hearts while bullets rape the night of the merciful. That's an amazing line. Um, I'll see you again when the stars fall from the sky and the moon has turned red over one tree hill. Why don't we why don't we listen to that? Yes. Um, throughout the song, Bono's vocal is so controlled, um, but it drips with emotion and meaning. And he, when he reaches for that crescendo at the end, when it's raining, raining hard, um, it, it's it's heartbreaking. Mm, yeah. The vocal uh, supposedly is one take because Bono said he couldn't do it again. Uh, and certainly the improvised last minute of the song is pure gut-wrenching rapture before the final gospel-influenced uh, coda brings the song to an elegiac close. think the lyrics here represent a maturation in Bono's Christianity, if I could say, mm. uh, referencing the traditional uh, Maori uh, burial ceremonies on One Tree Hill, as you mentioned. Uh, and it shows a universal faith that didn't exclude uh, an empathy with others' beliefs and rituals. Uh, their Christianity wouldn't plaster over the universal archetypes uh, of, of mourning, uh, which mm. I think that was... Um, so I think this is a, a, a big step forward uh, in his own, again, as, as an awakening as a writer. I would also say this is the most accomplished of all kind of like something that uh, the lyrics, they cross over definitely into poetry um, here. Uh, certainly the most accomplished piece of writing for, for me on this record. Mm. I agree. I agree. And I think it's Paul McGinnis said that this was his uh, favorite song that you two did, period, mm. which is kind of interesting. Yeah, very and I do want to say one thing about the music. Um, you know, uh, there's that riff that Edge has that starts the song that sort of uh, sounds, I don't know, as African or maybe Polynesian. Um, I mean, it's lovely and it's now iconic. Um, um, and then that 
bass and drum line are just pretty amazing. Um, and, and together the music, it feels sorrowful, um, but, but there's something very transcendent about it. Very, very uplifting. And I love the cellos, uh, mm. which are not processed. That's actually the real thing. All right. So I think we got One Tree Hill. And where are we going next? Let's go ahead and take a listen to Exit. talk about Bono and Edge reading American authors um, like Raymond Carver, Norman Mailer, Truman Capote, uh, and Flannery O'Connor, and looking at another depiction of America, that of um, the loner, misfit, criminal, um, the ones who have been chewed up and spit out by the American mainstream dream and come back for revenge. And this song feels like a direct link to that literature. Yeah, um, you know, Bono said this literature inspired him to try to understand the ordinary stock first and then the outsiders or the driftwood, those on the fringes of the promised land, cut off from the American dream. And, you know, I don't know about you, Melody, I, I was wondering, since Bono is a great admirer of Bruce Springsteen, whether the outliers on his Nebraska album was also an influence. I know that's not really been said, but it mm. made, made me wonder. No, it's interesting. That's that that is an interesting thing to to wonder about. Yeah. It's very plausible. Yeah. Um you know, but I, so what I was thinking here was um on the music, um Edge has said that the band wanted to do a jam session with a very specific idea in mind. Um that and that the working title of the song was Executioner song. Um of course all points to the band wanting to do a type of exploration into the mind of a killer and of course that does give credence to the norman mailer right, uh, right, piece right um uh yeah so this was a very long jam as you said uh one that had a specific section that um the band said had some magic and that's what was edited down and became exit um, so it's kind of interesting, and we'll cover this on the tour, but this is another track that they had to learn how to play for the tour because the arrangement we hear on the on the record, actually, they had never played before. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, you know, musically, I think the song feels quite sinister. I don't know if you agree with me, but... Um, I, I, I do. Yeah. Frenetic, violent. Um, it's sort of the flip side of the coin to U2's usual optimism and inclusiveness. Yeah. Um, you know, and personally, I think it was great for you to to color outside of those lines and explore this region of the psyche. Um, it's powerful. It feels sort of like an exorcism. I, I almost wish they had explored it more as kind of a counterpoint to it. But I, I, I do enjoy the track very much. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, not at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, just kind of along those same lines, you know, lyrically, Bono's painting a picture of a man sort of in the grips of, I don't know, a psychotic break. Um, and paranoid religious fanaticism that's driving him to some sort of violent action. Um, you know, there, there, those lines, um, you know, he got the cure, then he went astray. He used to stay awake to drive the dreams he had away. Well, why don't we go ahead and just take a listen to that? Yeah, let's do that. You know he got the cure, you know he went astray. He used to stay awake to drive the dreams he had away. He wanted to believe. In the hands of love. And then there are the lines, so hands that build can also pull down, even the hands of love. So that could be still in that wheelhouse of the killer, the religious fanatic, or it could be of a piece of Bullet the Blue Sky, another pointed critique of U.S. foreign intervention, wrecking havoc abroad. Who knows? The ambiguity is actually something I, I like about it. Um, and yet, Bono argues it's all connected. Uh, he said, it is all very well to address America and the violence that is an aggressive foreign policy, but to really understand that, you have to get under the skin of your own darkness, the violence we all contain within us. 
Right. And I, again, I think that's that ambiguity that you're talking about is, is a good point. And it's something that we've talked about on several of these songs. So it's a hallmark of the lyrics in this album. Right. Um, um, I mean, for me, I'm not sure that all penetrated to the masses that heard, you know, with or without you or still haven't found on the radio and picked up Joshua Tree. But that darkness is there for those that made it that deep into the record. And uh, props to the band for not shying away from that when they launched the tour, because, you know, it was on full display in what the band called the Heart of Darkness segment of the shows that included, you know, stuff like Bad and Exit. Um, and it's in that live setting where Exit really takes off as a performance piece. I mean, really, like some of the versions on that tour are really intense uh, and some of the best of that tour. No, I agree. I agree. Um, it, it did feel sort of like an exorcism. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the hands that build can also pull them. Even the hands of love. I do think what is so interesting about these lyrics is there is no redemption. There's no happy ending here. Which also goes to what you were you always point out, which I like on stuff like Bad or Running to Standstill, where there's no judgment, but there is no resolution. And I think that is a very effective writing trope. It's also um, quite mature. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. One that maybe not... Uh, you would have seen earlier in their career, but it's, it's starting to come to fruition. Absolutely. Yeah. So. So why don't we go ahead um, and take a look at Mothers of the Disappeared. Yes, the final track. Let's take a listen. Okay, so after ending the first two U2 records, Boy in October, with, let's be honest, some pretty mediocre finales in Shadows and Tall Trees and Is That All, this is now the third straight album that concludes on a very high note, uh, that being 40 on War, uh, MLK on Unforgettable Fire, and here, Mothers of the Disappeared. Um, which takes its inspiration from Bono's meeting with members of Comadres, while he was in Nicaragua, this is a group of mothers and relatives to discover the truth behind the missing relatives who had, quote-unquote, disappeared. Um, this group took its inspiration from the original Madres of Plaza de Mayo, which was the mothers of more than 30,000 people that disappeared during the military regime in Argentina. Right, and that movement then spread into Chile and beyond into Latin America. And this song is a tribute to these women. Um, and sonically, to me, it feels like a lament. Um, yeah. And while not explicitly stated, it certainly implicates America in the atrocities of these forced disappearances. Yeah, and I, I really love Bono's vocal. It's very yearning. It's uh, also restrained. And the melody, he said, was actually taken from one of the songs he and Ali would sing to the children while in Ethiopia. It was a song about hygiene, believe it or not, uh, that stuck in his brain and he used for the melody on Mothers of the Disappeared. Hmm. You know, I think in its final um, incarnation, along with all of the songs Sorrow, it really becomes sort of a call to action. Um, and, yeah. you know, you two have used it. Um, when they played live as a, a teaching tool of sorts to educate audiences about these atrocities. Um, I mean, of course, you two were already using music to express their political views. I mean, we can just look at Sunday Bloody Sunday and pride for that. But now with Bullet and Mothers of This Disappeared, um, they were consciously using their music as a tool to enact political change. 
Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, it always amuses me um, when I hear people say now, um, I used to like you two back in the 80s, but now they're too political. <laughs> I mean, you, know, you really can't get more political than this song and bullet. A hundred percent. I also wanted to mention this is the most forward-leaning production, almost a forerunner of the kind of production Eno and Lenoir would use on Octune Baby four years later when they were looking to reinvent themselves. Uh, we'll get to that. Um, also, another track that wasn't conceived through ensemble playing, but another one that was built uh, building block style. It started with Eno sampling Larry's drums from another track, and then he slowed it down. Uh, then he treated it with tons of reverb. Uh, Eno also treated the keyboards through various processors. Then Edge used a thing called the Bond Electroglide, which is a guitar with no frets, and the strings create a unique vibration on the fretboard. He also used it for that really heavy solo at the end of One Tree Hill and for that main jam we talked about on Exit. So this is very much an Eno-esque track, but by the time they mixed it, he had moved on and Lenoir did it. And Bono said Lenoir's mix was like watching a performance. That's really interesting. I mean, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about that tag team approach right. to producing. Um, so that, that's very interesting that this song benefits so greatly from that approach. Yeah, the finale ends up being probably the most... Uh, uh, most indicative of that tag team yeah, style. Yeah, it's interesting. So there you have it, the Joshua Tree. Um, Melody so tell me about your first taste of this record that was released March 9th, 1987 uh, to the rest of the world, and I believe a day later for us in the U.S. Well, Bill, it's kind of funny that you asked me about my recollection of first listening to The Joshua Tree, um, because funny enough, I can't quite place my first listening to the album. And really? I, yeah, and I think that maybe because I found it easy to like, Mm. Um, there wasn't that period as, you know, with a lot of other albums that ha are very meaningful to me, um, by U2 and by other artists where I found myself listening over and over and over to get into it, to unlock its secrets. Um, this record, I just got immediately. And I really put that down to the fact that U2 accomplished what they set out to do and wrote an album of really good, solid songs. So this um, record worked for you right away. It did. Yeah. It did. Um, but, you know, sometimes when music is immediately accessible, the allure wanes pretty quickly, mm -hmm. um, but not so here. Um, I, the music is accessible, but I don't think it's easy. Um, it's cinematic. It's big. It's rousing at times, subtle and subdued at others. But it's always very full of emotion and complexity. Um, and I mean, the lyrics are just so well crafted and multi-layered. Um, and I mean, these songs, they're about the big stuff, the important stuff, um, sexual, spiritual, political, you know, the, the personal is political. Um, I mean, we've talked about the multiple interpretations of many of the lyrics, which is one of this album's greatest strengths. And I think because of the emotionality of the music and the malleability of the lyrics, these songs can mean and, and have meant different things to me at different times. And they've really become lifetime companions. So, I mean, I, I guess my main takeaway is I have to agree with so many fans and critics. And I just think this album is a masterpiece. I want to tell you, Melody, and I know the friends of the podcast are fascinated with this subplot of our of our show. Yes, I finally had a car <laughs> by the time this record came out. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Um, um, but you know, the funny thing is, uh, I actually had, uh, a tape of this record, uh, probably two weeks before. So this is, this is the first time I had an advanced cassette. I mean, I think probably one of my critic friends or something laid it on me or whatever. Um, and I'll tell you what happened when I first heard it. You know, I took a drive because as we all know, you got to give it the car test, right? <laughs> That's the best place to, uh, and the best way to uh, listen to a new record. And for me, that means going up on Mulholland Drive, if anyone in LA knows, that's 
a spot up above the LA. You look down over the the lights of the city. This is where I did all my main listening to music uh, from the time I first had a car. Uh, and even today. <laughs> um, so anyway, so what happened was I, I pop in the cassette. I listen to Streets. I listen to Still Haven't Found. I listen to With or Without You. I pull over to the gravel of the road. I turn off the tape and I thought to myself, well, bloody hell, they did it. They finally did it. They. It was almost like they finally let themselves do it. Because for those of us who'd followed them since boy, we knew they had this record in them. It was more about, at least for me, when were they going to allow it to happen? Because you thought after boy, it was going to happen. And then we got October. We thought after war, we were going to get it. And then we got the art project known as Unforgettable Fire. But after Live Aid, after the Amnesty Tour, I mean... Uh, there it was for the taking. And like I said, after hearing those first three songs, which now is, as we talked about, which is pretty much looked at as arguably, you know, the greatest first three songs of any record, you know, we, there you go, there it is. And, you know, Melody, as I said, as someone who's been there virtually from the start, as have you, who's championed them, who's defended their awkward missteps, been an ambassador for their cause. I felt this strange mix of pride that my band had made it, you know, to the mountaintop. But mm, also some sadness that things would never be the same again. So as I sat there processing all this, I guess I felt like, well, off they go now. They don't need me anymore. I mean, I still admired them, and I want to emphasize that I didn't think they'd sold out because – you know, that's nonsense. You know, anyone who thinks that if you become popular, it's a sellout, they're full of crap. Um, no, I mean, I just figured there's some other smaller bands now that could use my help. Replacements, Husker Du, Sonic Youth. And as you know, Melody, as the Joshua Tree was climbing the charts, not to make it about myself, but just for context, my own band was about to jump into a van and go on tour. So I was now leaning into this whole DIY, jump in the van uh, you know, FOs like Minutemen or Black Flag. So honestly, as far as the Josh Street phenomenon, while I knew it was a great record, I, I kind of took a view from a distance. We had known each other for probably, what, about a year and a half, I think, right. probably about that time when the Joshua Tree came out. But I have to say, Bill, we did know each other. And how come I didn't know that you had a an advanced cassette? I didn't know that, actually, until we were recording this Jealous. So thanks, man. Jealous. Thanks for not sharing. Um, God, I am embarrassed. Why wouldn't I have shared that? I don't know. I don't know why you didn't. Embarrassing. You're just too cool because you were getting in the van. Uh huh. And Maybe. I remember the party that we had for you guys before you left too. Yeah, it was very kind. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but but I get what you're saying. I, I do understand what you're saying about um, feeling very happy, feeling very pleased for them that they had done it. And right. like you, I am not someone who. Um, uh, thinks that because a band becomes successful, you, you can't like them anymore because, you know, I, I'm too right. cool to do that. I think it's ridiculous. No, um, no, totally. And this really felt very celebratory that they had cracked it. Right. So I will just say, despite all my reservations, um, it, it was, as I said, completely obvious to me that you two had done something extremely special and you know more than any other u2 album before or since i can see now that joshua tree captures a feeling and a mood perfectly in tune with the times and yet completely at odds with the prevailing uh, musical zeitgeist so hey let's also go ahead and talk about the album cover which of course is so iconic what are your okay. thoughts well, we have to. Um, what I found interesting is uh, the title for the re record actually comes very late in the process, um, after recording is finished. But prior to that, as we've covered, one of the concepts of the record, as we said, was the two Americas, you know, which was this juxtaposing the promised land of America versus Reagan's America. And this was actually a working title for the album, but ultimately didn't capture, you know, what they wanted to convey. Right. Um, and the band has been using um, or had been using the image of the desert as a way to visualize the concept of, as you said, the two Americas and the cinematic landscape of the music. So they ask Anton Corbin to come up with some desert locations to convey that feeling through the album's cover art. Right. So they go off on a road trip to California with Anton Corbin. And this is in December of 86. 
and Anton suggests some shots with a sole Joshua tree he found, which is actually not in Joshua Tree National Park, but much further out near the entrance to um, Death Valley along Route 190 near Darwin, California. Right. And Bill, of course, you and I, uh, living in Los Angeles, um, live only a few hours from the Mojave Desert, where this is all located. Right. Um, and, you know, I have to say, I've always loved these trees. Yes. Um, I don't think I don't think I've ever seen one growing alone, though. Um, right. they, they usually are in clumps. Um, so the one on the album cover really was a very odd plant indeed. Yes. Now, also, I didn't learn this until much later. Um, this is one of the benefits of researching this podcast, as I know you've had a few of these moments, Melody. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was Mormon settlers who named these mysterious trees uh, that can survive harsh conditions and live without water. Uh, and they named it after Joshua from the Bible. Uh, and they felt these outstretched tree limbs guided them along their westward journey, which I found very interesting. It I is didn't interesting. Know that. Yeah. I didn't either, actually. No. No. Um, yeah, and, and the story goes that Bono liked the religious significance attached to the trees. However, it sounds like at least the rest of the band was on board with the photo shoot because they found Anton Corbin's Dutch accent pronunciation of the word Joshua, which is Joshua, uh, very funny. Joshua. Uh, maybe they wanted to keep him saying it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Bastards. Uh, <laughs> now, for the rest of us, as you said, Melody, who live in these parts, you know, these haunting trees, you know, are very cool. And they tell a story of survival, resilience, and beauty born through perseverance. And these branches, uh, it's like a cry for uh, for hope, reaching out like a form of prayer. And I, I know about you, Melody, I, I have made many sojourns to Joshua Tree. Um, I'm a major convert. I mean, well before uh, this record, I have to say. Uh, and it is a very special place out it there. Really, it truly is. That That's a place that uh, for our listeners, if they haven't been there, they should they should go on a starry night. It's amazing. It, true. Um, now, uh, we'll just share one quote from Larry. Um, he had said, for me, the Joshua Tree represented the other side of America, the the open space, the freedom, what America stood for. It's not a metaphor, not even a concept. It's a kind of tribute. It wasn't like we went looking for the Joshua Tree. The Joshua Tree came looking for us. Um, and, you know, of course, the photos, they are very, very lovely. Um, as I said earlier, they're iconic, but they are oh so serious. I mean, they're really kind of grim. Well, the photo shoot was in December, remember, and the desert in winter is not hot. It is no. deadly cold <laughs> out there, and which explains why the band looks so dour in the shots. <laughs> right. Because they're out there at being asked to be in tank tops, and <laughs> it's about, you know, 37 degrees. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I mean, I think that seriousness, though, it, it does end up being something the band eventually wants to distance themselves from, right? Um, yes. When they start to record Duck Tongue Baby, of course, we'll get to that later. Right. Um, the actual Joshua Tree itself, in case anybody who's listening doesn't know, unfortunately, it is no longer with us. It has died. Um, it fell over about 20 years ago. Um, and I hear that I haven't done this myself, but that going to look for the fallen tree is some sort of pilgrimage for fans. Um, people have left notes, they've left guitars and other stuff near the fallen tree. And I hear that someone even installed a bronze plaque with an image of the tree and the words, um, have you found what you're looking for out there in the desert? Um, and I mean, I think this all speaks, of course, you know, to how this album and band have, how much that it is they've meant to be. And may I just interject, I, it, it was kind of like a, a running joke among us that, you know, the band would often demur when asked, where is the Joshua tree that's on the cover? Right. Because Bono would say, uh, yeah, we didn't want, you know, t- people coming up to us backstage and saying, Bono, we've got it. Here it is. <laughs> right, right. Which I think that they did a really good job doing that. And yeah. I guess the tree, it, it. It's carcass. It's not a tree carcass. Yeah. The remains of the tree. The remains. Still yes. out there in the, <laughs> the desert. It died of natural right. causes. Yes, so, indeed. It's kind of good to hear. All right. So, Melody, let's move on to the reception. People couldn't stand this record. I mean, let's no, tell them all it. about it. They yeah. It. it was uh-huh. shite. 
So yes, yes. Um, actually, there was even a midnight release at some record stores in the UK and Ireland to accommodate fan excitement. And I would have really loved to have gone to one of those had that happened in the States. But alas, it did not. Uh, I I had heard that um, this was one of the first, if not the first, midnight sales. And of all things, Elvis Costello told a story of his then-wife, Pope's bassist, Caitlin O'Reardon had dragged him down at midnight uh, to a Dublin record store to buy the Josh Tree, and then they went home and played it all night. That's a very cool story. It is. Um, so, as you said, nobody listened to this album and no one liked it. So, surprisingly, it did chart at number one immediately in the UK, and it stayed there for two weeks. Funny that. Um, yes, funny that. Um, <laughs> but wildly, though, it yeah. stayed in the UK charts for almost four years. Which is just incredible. I um, guess they didn't hate them after all. <laughs> <laughs> in the States, yeah. it entered the charts at number seven, and then it went to number one three weeks later, where it stayed for nine weeks. Um, by the end of uh, 1988, the album had sold over 14 million copies. And I think at this point, the total um, sales are something in the region of 25 million. Um, critically, oh. there's, you know, for me, there's not a whole lot to say about the album. It was almost universally praised and was called by many one of the best albums of all time. Agreed. But I will share from Bill Graham of Hot Press, who was probably the first uh, critic who championed you to, at least from a major publication. Uh, and he said, it's the first conclusive evidence that the best young live band of their era had graduated as masterful pop mimics in the studio. With the Joshua Tree, their recorded work finally catches up and even outstrips their live reputation, which, of course, is on point to what we all were thinking. Like, as early as Boy, October, certainly War, where it's like, when is this band going to deliver of equal value what they are giving at such a high peak live. Right. Yeah, that's a very intriguing idea. Um, although it's quite a hard, high bar <laughs> that the album would have to cross to, to meet that, because I still think that U2 was certainly the premier live act at this time. Right. Um, but yeah, if, if, if they hadn't reached the same height, they were certainly a lot closer than they had been. So speaking of them live, um, did you want to go ahead and talk about the tour? Well, before we did, right before the tour started, just days, um, I wanted to add that uh, since we were talking about, you know, Melody, you and I were from L.A., um, you know, right before then, March 27th, 1987, I believe the tour launched April 2nd, I believe, um, local radio station KLOS and probably some others, uh, they leaked that U2 was going to do a rooftop show, a la the Beatles, in downtown L.A. This was a ends up being the video shoot for Where the Streets Have No Name. And this was shot at the Republic Liquor Store at 7th and Main, pretty much where Skid Row begins. Uh, I managed to make it down there through the crush of traffic. I know a lot of folks didn't make it down there, Melody. Yep, I didn't make it. I was <laughs> I was trying to get there, but I didn't yeah. make it. Uh, but yeah, there was the crush of traffic, there was cordon off streets and so forth. Uh, I made it there. I, I still don't know this day which version of the many takes of streets that they were doing. But I when I got there, they were doing it. And I look up there. Um, I, I, I believe they also did People Get Ready in God's Country, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, and Pride uh, before the police finally shut it down, which is exactly what U2 was trying to make happen. Again, a la the Beatles. But uh, they had had to get permits to even get there. So I think it was hard for them even to pull off this whole idea of getting, quote unquote, shut down because they gotten permitted. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so it's a little bit of a ker kerfuffle. So let, let me ask you, because like I said, I, I didn't make it down there. I got there probably right afterwards and, and was listening to people's great stories. Could yeah. you see anything? From where yeah, you yeah. The, what? Yes, good question. Because it's a little misleading. Because when you see the footage of the video, it's of course at ground level, which is on the roof. Yes, it was very hard to see because there were points in which Edge would peer over and the oh, there's Edge, and Bono would peer over. Oh, there's Bono. Like we never saw Larry. <laughs> right, right, yeah, right. Yeah. So they would have had to be like really, really close to the edge. I see. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. That's cool, though. So it was a big deal, and again. The reference point is Live Aid, Amnesty, 
uh, Sun City. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just the anticipation was massive. Right. And and that that part I do remember, even though I didn't see it, the afterglow was still going on when I got there. People were so excited. There was such a celebratory yeah. air, which kind of accompanied certainly that first leg of the tour, um, right. which, yeah, why don't we talk about that first leg? And, and with or without you was already climbing up the charts, the right. sort of very artful moody uh video it was already in massive rotation on mtv um right. so it, it was churning it was climbing it was and, becoming yeah, as, a thing as was the then. album yes for sure for yeah. sure yeah so let's talk about the tour all right Now, we are going to do an extensive Rattled Home episode or episodes covering both the record and the film. So, Melody, I just want to let everyone know uh, we're only going to talk about the first leg of the Joshua Tree tour because it mutates right into the Rattled Home period. So we're just going to take it up to when the filming began, right? Sounds good. Okay, so the first thing I wanted to touch on, and we kind of intimated at this because so many of the tracks were cobbled together from different jams or different takes were sutured together or, you know, whatever they did, a building block effect, the rehearsals for the tour were the first time they actually played a lot of these songs in the arrangements we all know them from the record. Streets, Still Haven't Found, With or Without You, Bullet, Exit, Mothers, all of those. So rehearsals end up being fraught with a kind of tension, trying to pull it all together. And just days before the launch in Tempe, Arizona, Bono takes a spill. He's lost in the music. He doesn't know the lay of the land of the, of the staging. And he takes a spill and lands on a lighting rig, splits open his chin, requiring 12 stitches. Then a day later, he loses his voice from both over-rehearsing and because of the desert air. So he's reduced to a croak and whelp on opening night. Right. Um, and from this harrowing start, the band begins a 30-day tour of the States, um, playing mostly multiple night stands in arenas, um, along with their first stadium show in Michigan. Right. Um, you know, and as we were mentioning, the album was number one for several weeks of the tour. As you were saying, Bill, with or without you is going up the charts. They were on the cover of Time magazine. Yeah. Um, all of the concerts sell out, which interestingly, though, except for the Vegas show. Which you saw. Which I saw. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the momentum, it was just huge. Um, yeah. They had cracked mainstream superstardom in the States. And media wise, I do remember that they were everywhere. Yeah. Um, uh, I saw the band three times during that leg. Um, once in Vegas, as we mentioned, and then twice in LA. And, you know, as I mentioned, my recollection is really just of this tremendous energy and excitement, but it was still a U2 show and it still felt connected and as intimate as an arena show can be. Right. And so I will just say, I'll own this despite Again, my reservations at the time, I saw all five of the L.A. sports arena shows on that first leg. This was just two weeks into the tour. These were the first high-profile dates of the tour. And I remember the shows being strong, but to me personally, a little disappointing. But, you know, I think that's more a me problem because based on, you know, where my head was at, you know, like I was saying, kind of more... I was into indie rock or college rock, as it was called at the time. There was no alternative rock at the time. Uh, that would be four years later with Nirvana. Uh, anyway, when I look back now, though, I recognize as much as things were going through the roof on that first leg, I see now they were still keeping their wits about them. The shows were compelling. They were intense, and there was no concessions being played to the new punters kind of coming to see them. So I kind of, I, I'm, I'm of two minds. I Because yeah. on this podcast, you know, Melody, we try to 
put ourselves back in context to the time. And at the and as I said, at the time, I felt a little disappointed, but I recognize now that was me and where my head was at. And right. when I and, and and as I said, as we go now, I look back now and and I listen to some of those shows. They're extre- they're very strong. Uh, they're varying the set list. They're they're playful. They're 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 putting it out there. They're not making concessions. Yeah, I mean that that is my recollection. Yeah, um, is is how good they were. But yeah, I mean, it makes complete sense, Bill. That you know you were just in a different headspace. Yeah. But in the midst of all this, though, right? The media is going off. They're just selling amazing amounts of albums. They're on the radio constantly. They're on TV constantly in the States. In the midst of this swirl, um, Paul McGinnis has this brilliant idea to take things as big as they can go. And and so he conceives the idea of making a film to document the tour. Seems like a good idea. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) But it's when they start filming that... Uh, you know, what turns out to be Rattle the Home, that things start to go sideways. Yes. And we yes. will talk about that the next time on Into the Heart of You 2 podcast. Mm-hmm.